one last time to the end of Hebrews chapter 11, this great uh, hall of faith, as it's been called. We come now, though, to the focus of that faith, which can be none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. But picking up now, let's, uh, well, let's, let's read back in uh, verse 32, the passage we read last time, but uh, remembering where we've come, and we'll go into chapter 12. Let's read together, starting in chapter 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, and also David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had a trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Amen. Let's pray once more together. We do desire to look unto Jesus and have our faith finally find its firm and strong resting point. We thank you for all the many witnesses that went before, for all the saints who now from their labors rest. But it was only by thee, O Jesus, as the hymn says, that they were able to uh, make their pilgrimage uh, all the way to the heavenly city to finish their race and to enter into your glory. So we likewise would fix our eyes upon Jesus and pray that he would be strength to our bones today. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1977, there was a book published in the United States that uh, changed the way that uh, many people spent their free time. It took the U.S. by storm, actually. In just a couple of weeks, it had sold its first million copies. It had a red cover. It had a pair of uh, gangly legs on the front, but it wasn't the legs that sold the book. They were bony and unattractive. They were the legs of the author, a 45-year-old runner named Jim Fix. The book was called The Complete Book of Running, in which the author told how running had transformed his life. And he encouraged Americans to run, and he taught them how to run. And he inspired hundreds of thousands of Americans to 
well, buy the book and some tennis shoes, but a few of them also began to run and to pound the pavement. Well, the Christian life is, of course, also called a race. And faith is a living and enduring, sometimes agonizing athletic grace that motivates and energizes us to press on in the race of our calling and to overcome great obstacles. In particular, this letter to Hebrews is a book about persevering, about running the Christian race with endurance. The author urges us to run, and he teaches us how to run. And that's very important for the original audience, these Christians who, as we said in weeks past, have been experiencing a pretty hard time, estranged from their families and their culture, persecuted, suffering loss, the plundering of their goods, being discouraged, uh, tempted rather to compromise, to, to go back to their previous way of life. It was a difficult time. It was hard to persevere in the heat of such a race. Thomas Watson said of the Christian race that tis sweating work all the way to glory. I like that. Tis sweating work all the way to glory. And therefore, Christians are encouraged to persevere, to endure, to press on. Uh, Implying, of course, that Christians are not always pressing forward in the race of their calling as they ought. Sometimes it's true. We wander off that narrow path. Sometimes we get disoriented. Sometimes we even fall down and injure ourselves. And at such times, we feel tempted to give up on following Christ with all of our hearts And we are at least tempted to give in little by little to the world around us. It's hard to continue running against the wind. Our hearts, nevertheless, have been stirred as we studied this great cloud of witnesses who are uh, perhaps uh, cheering us on, if you like, or at least uh, being a witness to us of the way that we are to run. This passage in Hebrews has summarized various great trials and triumphs of all the prophets, martyrs, and saints before us. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, wrote one, for they have lightened the world by their testimony and fertilized it with their tears and blood, to change the metaphor. But now we uh, come again to the point of all these things that have gone before about the need that we have to endure, and we need to deal with the theme of spiritual discouragement and perseverance, not so much the causes of it, but the solution for it. How it is that by looking to Jesus and by persevering in faith that we might finish the race of our calling. For we too, in our own way, not as bad as they had it, surely, but feel rejected, marginalized, belittled, ostracized, sometimes persecuted. Surely we have need of endurance. Somebody actually did a count and counted 96 verses in letter to the Hebrews that encourages, they encourage or command endurance. It's a very important theme. For example, where we started this time back in 1023, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. 1036, you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise again and again, this great theme throughout the letter. Well, 
only two points this evening. You know, I'm going on vacation, so I can't have three points. I'm going to have to just cut it short with two this evening here. Number one, beginning with believing. Beginning with believing. This is where we began and also where that chapter 11 brought us at an end. Chapter 11 began that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And it ends up that these all having obtained a good testimony through faith and so forth. In order to endure, the author has said, we must, from this great cloud of witnesses, learn that the secret lies in faith. The faith that we must cultivate, that we must practice, the faith that we must strengthen. And this whole chapter has not been about justifying faith or being saved through faith, but particularly about the practical power of faith to motivate us every day. Back to verse 24, for instance. By faith, Moses, when he came of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. No, he chose the reproach of Christ over the riches of Egypt. By faith, verse 30, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish, and so forth. Faith is something that is practically very, very important for our salvation and for our life and experience. We are saved through faith, and the righteous will live every day by faith. Without faith, we read earlier, it's impossible to please God, and so it is a very important issue in Hebrews. Now, we think, looking over this great cloud of witnesses once more, thinking back, how differently a man or woman who believes, who really believes, lives in this world. The one that seeks first Christ's kingdom, knowing that everything else will be added to them. The one that knows that Christ will be with them at every moment, no matter where they are, that he will not leave them nor forsake them, but he is with them. How different they live. Their works, they know, will follow them. They know they can do all things through Christ who strengthens them. They know that his power is made perfect in their weakness, on and on. How differently a man or woman lives who believes that all the exceedingly great and precious promises of the Lord are yes and amen in Jesus. Then when the story of this world is finally written, it will be the believers in God and the Word of God who are the great heroes of the tale. That's the lesson from this chapter. This world is not going to be benefited by people floating downstream. The world is benefited by men and women, boys and girls of courage, who by faith will go against the current. And uh, I mentioned Karl Marx this morning. This is the answer to Karl Marx. You know, Marx and the modern atheists, too, they look at chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, so forth. And, oh, yeah, pie in the sky. You know, opium for the masses, said the Marxists. No, no, no. It's the very opposite in this chapter. If they would just read on. By faith, these are the people that have shaken the world and changed the earth. To paraphrase Kerry, these are the things that they did. They... Their faith caused them to expect great things from God and to attempt great things for God. That faith is not just about Christian character and godliness, but faith means practical courage and confidence, and especially here today, 
perseverance. Consider William Wilberforce, that Christian politician, now hailed as the man who brought an end to the slave trade, a man that in his day was reviled and persecuted ferociously for years till his health was broken. What caused him to continue to go on? What gave him the gumption to stand virtually alone? It was his faith in God. William Tyndale, a man hailed as that mighty early reformer who brought the Bible to our language, a man who was under the sentence of death until he was at last betrayed and executed. What made him live such a life of a fugitive and seek to publish the word of God despite so many threats from so many powerful people? As it has always been, it was by faith that he overcame the world. This is the victory that overcomes the things in your world, even your faith. So often we feel isolated. We feel alone. And the author has stirred us up by this great hall of faith. Because you see, they believed what we believed. But look what they had to endure. They had to compass the city seven times, but those walls fell, right? They had to endure the reproaches of Christ, but they were of greater worth than the riches of Egypt. And these people, this great hall of faith, says, you're not weird. You're not isolated. You, you people that feel the peer pressure, you young especially, you have to know that all of God's great people have known the same thing, that they have had to endure such hostility right from the beginning, even from righteous Abel. And this is the way that the world is shaken, that things happen, that people believe, and that in, by faith they go on and do great things for God. The world, I say, is not benefited by people floating downstream like dead fish. We're about to leave for Jensen Beach, Florida, in a matter of a few hours. We will enjoy every day waiting out to uh, lounge in the waves and maybe do the same thing. Uh, we go out, we, 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 we enjoy the, the, the waves, we go back and forth, we just float out there for a little while. And uh, the current, uh, typically going one way or another, just pushes us down the beach for a block or two. And then after a while, we get out of the water, we walk back, and we do it all again, right? And um, well, wh why do we do that? Why don't we stand there and fight the current? Because everyone knows it's no fun to fight the current all the time. It's much more comfortable just to enjoy and to go with the flow. And, and this is the way that the world gets on. We, we don't feel any pressure as long as we're going with the current of the age. But as soon as you plant your feet, you know what that feels like when you're out there in the water and all of a sudden you plant your feet and then you, you realize that you are going to have to stand your ground and the difficulty begins and it is hard to go against the pressure. It's hard constantly to be fighting against the flow. But this is the very thing that Hebrews says is the key to victory. Having that faith kindled within, the righteous will live by that faith and it will press us toward effort and nonconformity. Now, as this chapter on faith is brought to a close, we're reminded that faith is only as good as the object of our faith, right? No good just being a person of faith, right? That's ridiculous. Faith must be in something, and that's the whole matter. And so at the end of this great chapter on faith, he points us to the object of our faith, which is Christ. And... We come now to the focus of the whole letter. We've had this little sidelight on faith. 
but you'll know that the whole letter up to this point has been on Christ and how Christ is better than the angels. Christ is better than Moses. Christ is the better high priest. Christ is the mediator of a better covenant. Christ serves at a better sanctuary. Christ has offered a much better sacrifice. Christ is better. But now as we come to point two and look at chapter 12, we are reminded that we must, in faith, be, point two, looking to our Lord. Looking to our Lord. As he says now, with his great cloud of witnesses, bearing witness to us or cheering us on, I can't say, but nevertheless, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. We must uh, not value faith so much as look at Christ. It is not faith that was crucified for you. It is not faith that has given you promise. It is Christ. And in this way, we are told to consider him. Consider him in verse 3. In which way should we be considering him? In which way is he also leading us on? Is it a matter of his holiness, his compassion, his great works? No. In the passage, we are to consider how he endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Apart from all these other people that we've mentioned, who have we seen, they've all had their own weaknesses and failings, we come now to Jesus, the one who had to endure such hostilities against himself, who went to the cross, enduring the cross, despising the shame, because the joy that was set before him carried him forward. Consider now Jesus, he says. Are you persecuted? Are you not appreciated? Are you excluded? Do you feel that pressure? He knows it all. Think of it. His own family for a long time didn't believe in him. They thought that he had lost his mind. Satan was unrelenting. His disciples, his own disciples were slow to understand. And it seemed too often were the voice of Satan to him. He faced evil and injustice and cruelty. And he was at last murdered by his own creatures. Consider him who endured the cross, despising the shame, and sitting down at the right hand of God. You notice that in the first three verses here of chapter 12, the word endurance is used in each verse. Verse 1, that we need to run with endurance. Verse 2, that Jesus endured the cross. And verse 3, that Jesus endured such hostility. We desire to be Christ-like. When we say Christ-like, we usually mean uh, what? Holy, merciful, right? Uh, good and wise and so forth. That is to be Christ-like, but it is also Christ-like to be lied about, to be pressured by hostility, to be unfairly treated, to be sneered at, to suffer affliction, Consider him who endured such hostility, this author and finisher or perfecter of our faith. And this is the encouragement that he gives to us in hard times. When we are tempted to grow weary and to question what's going on, 
He says earlier he was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He knows what it's like to have to go through that every day, yet without sin, so that you may go to him and find grace and mercy for your time of need. He has navigated it all. He has endured it all. Look unto Jesus. Go to Jesus. Think of what it was that he had to endure for our sakes. And when we find ourselves in such difficulties and struggles, far from discouraging us or shaking our faith, they got to confirm us that we are in exactly the right place. He was lied about. He was laughed at. He knew heartbreak. And, and we're his followers. If the godly Moses had to choose a path of suffering for the reproach of Christ, should the people of God expect any less? Hebrews is saying, look, this is what we are called to in the world. Just look unto Jesus. I think of Bunyan's Christian. We studied some weeks ago in Sunday school. And do you remember his uh, first sprint? He, he, he began to realize his need. He knew, he knew that he lived in the city of destruction. He began to flee the wrath to come. And his wife came out and his neighbors and his children and his uh, fellow townspeople all called out to him and started mocking him. But he put his fingers in his ears and he said, life, life, eternal life. And he ran on. There was joy that was set before him and he despised the shame. He could not stay where he was. And so he went to find the Savior. Well, perhaps we are feeling depressed at the persecutions that seem to be rising in our day. Some of us have a tendency toward discouragement and spiritual discouragement. We focus our attention on what's going wrong in the world, and we become dispirited and fearful, and it's not hard to do. This is what sells newspapers. And when that is your focus or your tendency, we think that things are only going from bad to worse, but this chapter gives us the comfort to say we are certainly not the last people to feel this way about the world. The Lord had to endure such pain every day. But, the chapter says, remember the joy set before him. That there are no people in the entire world that should be more joyful than Christians, despite such things being true. That we have a Savior who has pressed onward and through to the very throne of God and says, come and uh, overcome, to him who overcomes, I will give him the right to sit on my throne, even as I overcame and sat down on my Father's throne. So we have joy inexpressible because we know the Lord. We have the love of Christ. We have the forgiveness of sins, the fellowship of the excellent of the earth. We have the greatest purpose. We have life eternal and everlasting joy, and we are co-heirs with Christ and all these other reasons to be happy. As we see Jesus, who for the joy set before him in the eternal kingdom and glory with his Father, had to endure such things at the moment, we likewise can see the same joy with the same spirit dwelling within us, the same confidence in the sovereignty of our God, knowing the same unchangeable love according to which he still governs all things to preserve us for the great day. And so all these true and wonderful promises are uh, saying to us, have the joy set before you in Jesus always motivating you onward. Our joy founded on the rock. Jesus says, you're going to rejoice and no one will take away your joy. 
And so Paul says, I want you to rejoice in the Lord always. Well, it's, it's a mixed bag then. We have seen many great victories in Hebrews 11. We have seen many struggles. Being a Christian doesn't deny the pain. Paul describes his situation as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And this is to be our role as well. The Christian discipleship is a call to endure, it's true, but also a call to remember the joy that is set before us, the solid joys and lasting treasures that none but Zion's children know. So the psalm says, our souls become downcast and disquieted, and the trials of life will weigh us down, temptations, afflictions, the hassles of everyday living, and we can't change our circumstances. But Hebrews says, look unto Jesus. Remember what he endured. Remember the joy that it was set before him by which he overcame. And so, even if we can't change our circumstances, we can change our focus and look to Jesus. When our souls are overwhelmed, we can say, why are you so cast down, O my soul? Why so disquieted in me? Hope in God. I will praise him yet, the help of my countenance and my God. We can look to Jesus. So the last verse of the Gospel of John that I read to you this morning was that Jesus did many other things, which if they were written one by one, I suppose, that the world itself couldn't contain the books. And that reminded me of the last line of a hymn that I thought was so beautiful, and I read it again. It goes like this. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole that stretched from sky to sky. Well, here it is. Um, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Look unto Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Well, in conclusion, by the time that Jim Fix started running, it was already too late for him. Um, He died a few short years afterward. And at his autopsy, the doctor found that two of his coronary arteries were almost completely blocked, and a third was badly restricted. And people made a lot of sneers at running when he suddenly dropped dead of a heart attack. It's possible, I suppose, that running might have preserved his life, but running couldn't save him. And so it was seven years later, he was buried in the grave. And this is where my running analogy breaks down, for no matter how damaged you were or are, as you began the Christian race or as you now find yourself in it, God will nevertheless preserve, restore, and strengthen you in it. Some begin that race very, very damaged when they start running. But by God's grace, it does not matter. 
that his power is made perfect in our weakness. And by God's grace, we will finish the race. No matter how exhausted we feel day in and day out, the children of God are nevertheless called to persevere, to fight the good fight, to finish the race, and to keep the faith. And finally, Paul says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all of those who have loved his appearing. The joy is set before you again, my dear brothers and sisters. Press on in the race of your calling, looking unto Jesus. Well, let's conclude with prayer. Our Father in heaven, again, how good it is to remember all the wondrous works that you have done in the lives of your people and how you have been their God and ours. There is none like you. There is no promise that you will not keep and there is no purpose that will fail of yours. Draw us and we will run after you and we will praise you for keeping us until that great day. May the full assurance that you will never let us go give us comfort and encourage us in the daily weariness of our, of our race. We confess once again, Father, our tendency toward despair, but by Christ's stripes we are healed. We have many discouragements of soul. We have many days of darkness. We pray that once again and again and again you would lift our eyes to look and behold that glorious author and finisher of our faith. And we pray that you would strengthen us in him, that even as the people who were struck in those days of old by the fiery serpents looked to the serpent that was on the pole and were healed, so that we too, looking unto Jesus, may be healed and continue our wilderness walk until we are safely in his presence.